Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. If you're an ASHP member, you will also have the opportunity to earn continuing education for listening to this episode. Stay tuned to the end of the episode for more information. My name is Sarah Blackwell, Clinical Pharmacist and PGY1 Residency Director at Princeton Baptist Medical Center, and our guest today is Norm Fenn, Clinical Assistant Professor at Manchester University College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and a Pediatric Clinical Pharmacist at Parkview Women's and Children's Hospital. In this episode, we will be discussing the vaccine-preventable disease measles. So welcome, everyone. Norm, why don't you set the stage for us by providing a patient case? Absolutely, and thank you so much for having me. So let's go ahead and get started with SK, who is a six-year-old male weighing 18 kilograms who presents to the emergency department with a two-day history of fever, cough, runny nose, fatigue, diarrhea, and decreased appetite. He also developed a rash on his face and neck this morning, prompting parents to bring him to the ED. During the patient interview, parents state that he was not quite feeling himself last week and wasn't as energetic as usual. SK has had fevers at home ranging between 38.5 to 39.5 Celsius that were measured orally that have improved with ibuprofen administration at home, with his most recent temperature being 40.1 degrees Celsius. Diarrhea has been reported as approximately six to eight episodes per day over the last two days. He has a past medical history significant for sickle cell disease and was hospitalized for an acute pain crisis about a month ago. Per parents, he's normally pretty stable with his sickle cell disease and can manage most pain issues with over-the-counter medications. They are in the process of establishing care in town as they recently immigrated from Cameroon about six months ago. There are no pets in the house and he has had no recent exposure to reptiles or farm animals. They did actually just return from Cameroon last week after visiting their whole family. SK and his family have not gotten their vaccinations to date. On physical exam, SK has a maculopapular rash on the face and sides of his neck. His eyes are red, and the surrounding orbital area appears mildly edematous. His cough is non-productive, and rails are heard on the lower right side of his lungs. Coughic spots are described in his mouth. His vital signs include a heart rate of 136 beats per minute, respiratory rate of 28 breaths per minute, blood pressure of 108 over 62 millimeters mercury, and his oxygen saturation is 92% on room air. He rates his pain as a four and using the faces scale, and he is consolable with his parents. He is alert and oriented times three. SK is subsequently admitted to the pediatric unit in a negative pressure room. Thank you, Norm, for that detailed case. Can you tell us a little bit more about the measles virus and its pathogenicity? Sure. So measles, which is also known as rubiola, is caused by the measles virus, which is a single-stranded RNA virus. It's a paramyxovirus in the morbillivirus genus and ranges between 120 to 250 nanometers in length. There are two main membrane and envelope proteins that are important in the virus's pathogenesis, the fusion protein and the hemagglutinin protein. The hemagglutinin protein is the part of the virus that binds to receptors on host cells. The fusion protein does exactly what it sounds like, which is it fuses with the target cell membrane and facilitates penetration of the virus into the cell. One of the interesting aspects of the measles virus is it doesn't really have a lot of described antigenic or mutated activity. Although there are reports of changes in the hemagglutinin protein, there hasn't been any documentation of decreased vaccine efficacy related to mutation. Additionally, humans are the only known vectors or natural vectors of the virus. It's not transmitted by any other animal, just human to human. Transmission does occur via airborne respiratory droplets, which are inhaled by an individual or through infected surfaces that have not yet been cleaned or treated. 
In those who are susceptible, the virus will enter the airway where it latches on to tracheal or bronchial epithelial cells during the first or primary viremia. From there, the virus infects alveolar macrophages and dendritic cells, which leads to a secondary viremia in the lymphatic tissues, which triggers a systemic response or a systemic infection in multiple organs. The secondary viremia is cell-associated and causes indiscriminate immunosuppression within the host that includes decreases in interleukin-12 production, delayed type hypersensitivity, and antigen-specific lymphoproliferative responses. This immunosuppression can put the host at risk of developing secondary infections that may be opportunistic in nature. Fortunately, a wild-type measles infection can trigger a sufficient immune response that results in adequate subsequent immunity to the virus. Interestingly, the measles virus itself is not really that resilient. It can be inactivated rather quickly by sunlight, ether, trypsin, acidic pH, and heat. So even though it's really quite contagious, appropriate infection control practices can minimize exposure and risk of transmission. You're right. That is interesting. What can you tell us about the prevalence of measles? Well, as I just mentioned, it is exceptionally contagious and infects about 9 in 10 people who are exposed to the virus and do not have sufficient immunity, which explains why outbreaks can occur so easily and require containment intervention. So just to give a bit of background, before the measles vaccine was introduced in 1963, there were about 500,000 cases of measles reported annually with a subsequent reporting of 500 deaths. And this was just nationally. Ultimately, it was actually assumed that the number was much higher, somewhere between three and four million cases of measles per year. Since the vaccine's introduction, cases actually decreased by about 95% overall. Even the epidemic cycles that were observed every two to three years no longer happened as a result of the vaccine implementation. The initial recommendation for the measles vaccine back in the 1960s was a single dose of it. But between 1985 to 1988, there was an outbreak of sorts among appropriately vaccinated children, which led to the change to the now standard two-dose measles vaccine series. In the year 2000, the U.S. declared measles to be eliminated from the country, much like other vaccine-preventable diseases. They could say this because the criteria for elimination were met. These include an absence of an endemic virus transmission in a particular geographic area for a period of at least 12 months that has a strong and effective surveillance program in place. Even though measles was technically eliminated, it's still possible to have patients present with the disease for multiple reasons, including travel to endemic areas, immunocompromised status, and under immunization. In the following few years, that is to say the early 2000s, as few as 34 cases of measles were reported. But due to an increase in vaccine misinformation and public hesitation, cases have been on the rise with almost 1,300 cases reported in 2019. Actually, in the first four months of 2019 alone, 704 cases of measles had been reported in 22 states, which was the highest single number of cases since 1994. During the COVID pandemic years from 2020 to 2022, there were a total of 183 cases in 17 jurisdictions, with most of those occurring in 2022. The CDC defines jurisdictions as the 50 states, District of Columbia, and New York City. And then as of May 2023, so just a couple months ago, 13 measles cases have been reported in 10 jurisdictions this year. So all in all, we're doing all right with the management of measles, but still there are risks associated with it. There have been also reported outbreaks of measles in the U.S. over the last 10 to 15 years in several states, including California, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and Texas. When I was a resident, there was an outbreak at Disneyland in Anaheim the week after the ASHP mid-year clinical meeting. A few of my co-residents and I had missed exposure to the measles virus by just a couple of days. 
Some of the reported outbreaks have been associated with international travel and exposure, such as the 2011 outbreak in California, the 2013 outbreak in North Carolina, the 2014 outbreak in Florida, and the 2016 outbreak in Arizona. Other outbreaks are within communities where individuals are unimmunized or underimmunized. These have been reported in 2009 in Pennsylvania that led to a hospital outbreak, as well as a 2011 outbreak in Minnesota due to misinformation and 2013 in New York due to religious beliefs surrounding vaccines. Further, outbreaks have occurred through community events, such as an international youth baseball tournament that was held in Maryland that led to connected cases in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Texas. Globally, outbreaks have been significant in countries such as Brazil, the Philippines, and the Ukraine. In 2018, Ukraine had more than 30,000 reported cases of measles, despite access to vaccines, with another 24,000 cases reported in January and February of the subsequent year. Brazil also had a significant outbreak in 2018. After not having any reported cases in 2017, they, more than 10,000 cases were reported in the first several months of 2018, leading to a massive national immunization campaign to vaccinate 11 million children against polio and measles. Also in 2018, the Philippines had more than 10,000 cases reported above what had previously been reported in 2017, with 203 deaths also reported. They too initiated a government-directed campaign with UNICEF to vaccinate 9 million children, as well as advocacy efforts to address concerns about vaccines and vaccinations. What all of these outbreaks really have in common is the individual or individuals involved are unvaccinated or do not know their vaccination status, or are hesitant to get vaccinated, which is why vaccination is so vitally important to prevent this disease. So Norm, how does measles typically present? What complications should we be aware of? Well, with the measles virus, the incubation period is anywhere from six to 21 days, with the most common being 11 to 12 days after exposure. Then with the prodromal phase, patients will usually present with fever, decreased appetite, general malaise, cough, coryza, and conjunctivitis, also known as the three Cs. Coffic spots are these sand-type spots on the inside of the mouth that are either blue or white in color and appear towards the back of the buccal mucosa and last for anywhere from one to five days. Interestingly, they've been likened to a grain of salt on a red back, so kind of like that nice little white flash in the back. These spots are actually a hallmark symptom of measles and can support diagnosis in the absence of rash. The rash itself, if you notice, I didn't mention that initially, it may or may not be present at assessment as it can take two to three days to appear after initial symptom presentation and about 14 days after the first exposure to the virus. It may or may not be pruritic as it depends on the patient, but generally this rash appears as blanching arithmetic macules and papules that start around the hairline on the face and neck and will spread downward throughout the rest of the body over a period of 48 hours. The rash will usually last about five to seven days before resolving into these hyperpigmented patches, which then desquamate. Additionally, some patients, such as those who are immunocompromised, may not develop the rash. So a lack of a rash is not enough to rule out measles on your differential. There are a couple of variants associated with measles, which are termed modified measles and atypical measles. Modified measles generally is a milder form of measles that occurs in individuals who have previously received measles immunoglobulin after a measles exposure. Patients who develop this type of infection generally have the same symptoms as a patient who has a measles infection, just to a lesser intensity. However, the incubation period with this disease may be as long as 21 days. Atypical measles involves older patients who received the original vaccine between 1963 and 1967 and have incomplete immunity. These patients may present with general symptoms such as fever, headache, abdominal pain, and myalgias, 
before a rash that occurs on the hands and feet and works inwards. So rather than starting on the top of the head, it kind of starts in the peripheral and works towards the central area. The reason for the specific dating is that the original measles vaccine was an inactivated vaccine, while the live attenuated vaccine for measles was introduced in 1967. Complications with measles is most often seen in children younger than five years of age and adults, but can happen in any population. They're reported to occur in about 30% of measles cases and can range from mild to fatal, which is why prevention is so important. Mild complications can include diarrhea and otitis media, while more serious complications include pneumonia and encephalitis. Pneumonia occurs in about 6% of measles cases and is the leading cause of death among measles infections. Since the immune system is so suppressed with measles, secondary infections are common, including viral and bacterial superinfections. Acute encephalitis occurs in about 0.1% of all reported cases and typically presents around day five of presentation, usually a couple of days after the rash appears. Measles-associated encephalitis can lead to permanent brain damage in about 25% of cases and has a fatality rate of about 10 to 15%. Acute disseminated encephalomyelitis is also a rare yet serious condition that can manifest during the recovery phase of a measles infection. This ADEM presents with fever, headache, neck stiffness, seizures, and altered mental status, though musculoskeletal system symptoms can also be present. Concerningly, ADEM associated with measles carries a 10 to 20% mortality risk above the usual 7% mortality rate from other causes of ADEM. Finally, subacute sclerosing panencephalitis is a rare progressive neurological disorder that presents anywhere from 6 to 11 years after experiencing a measles infection. A lot is unknown about the condition, including the pathogenesis and identification, but what is known is that most cases involve children who had a measles infection before they were two years of age. Presenting symptoms of SSPE include memory loss, irritability, myoclonic jerks, and seizures. Patients can also potentially go blind with this condition, as well as lose the ability to walk. Ultimately, patients continue to deteriorate until they reach a comatose state, then a vegetative state, inevitably leading to death from fever, heart failure, or neurologic failure. Sadly, there is no cure for SSPE, and treatment is supportive care only. As you can see, or at least really hear, because this is a podcast, there is real risk associated with contracting the measles disease. No kidding. So what should we be doing with patients? And what are the best treatment practices for measles? Are there particular therapies that have strong evidence? What are some of the options in the pipeline? Absolutely. So anytime we're getting patients who are coming in, we should be performing a comprehensive workup, along with a review of sick contacts, travel history, or recent exposure to identify where the patient may have contracted measles. As described previously, the hallmark symptoms of measles includes the identification of coughing spots and or the rash that progresses longitudinally from head to toe. It's also important to contact your State Department of Health to not only track the case, but also potentially expedite results that are critical to your diagnosis of measles. Laboratory collections should include a complete blood count, liver function tests, and both immunoglobulin G and M for measles, as well as a measles PCR. IgM may not be detectable for the first two days of a rash, but really should be drawn on day three of the rash and can be drawn as late as a month after that rash presents. Typically, seropositivity is reported around 77% if it's collected between days zero to three and 100% when it's collected on days four to 11. So it's really important that we follow that time frame. Virology testing, thankfully, only involves a nasopharyngeal swab, which is preferred, or it can involve a throat swab, and then results are usually reported within one to two days. 
Infection precautions, including wearing masks if able for both healthcare providers as well as the patients, and placed in a negative airflow room or infection isolation room, if available, is important. If this kind of room isn't available at your institution, a single patient room should be used with the door closed as much as possible. Patients should remain in complete isolation until the fifth day of rash, with day zero being the day of rash onset. So once that rash appears, that's what we're going to count as the first day of isolation. Any healthcare worker who is exposed to an infected patient should also isolate for up to 21 days after exposure. If individuals who are unvaccinated or undervaccinated are suspected to have been exposed to the measles virus, administration of either the MMR vaccine within 72 hours or measles immunoglobulin within six days of exposure can potentially reduce the intensity of or even prevent a measles infection. Measles immunoglobulin can be administered via intravenous, as in most IVIG products, and intramuscular specifically the Gamistan product routes. Though it is important to differentiate between products as they may be approved for only one route. Infants and immunocompetent patients under 30 kilograms should get an IM injection at a dose of 0.25 to 0.5 mils per kilogram to a maximum volume of 15 mils per dose. Pregnant women who are unimmunized and severely immunocompromised patients should receive IV immunoglobulin at a dose of 400 milligrams per kilogram. If immunoglobulin is given, the MMR vaccine is not recommended due to competing actions. Patients who receive the intramuscular Ig should not get the MMR vaccine for at least six months or eight months if they get the intravenous Ig. Then patients who are exposed and susceptible to measles and do not get the MMR vaccine should also quarantine for 21 days. Infants who are aged six to 12 months who may have been exposed to the measles virus or are traveling to an endemic area can receive a single MMR dose prior to travel for protection from the disease, but this doesn't actually count as part of their childhood vaccine series. So typically that MMR vaccine is given at both the 12 to 18 month window as well as the four to six year window for children. But if they get one earlier than 12 months, we don't count that as part of their two dose series. Most patients really just require supportive care to manage symptoms and prevent complications. And these can include medications like antipyretics, we can use intravenous fluids for hydration, antimicrobials if we suspect a secondary infection is present. However, there are some interventions that may support or expedite recovery from the infection, but the data are either really conflicting or just lacking in general. For example, patients with a measles infection tend to be deficient in vitamin A, especially children. So current World Health Organization guidelines with regards to measles recommend administration of two daily doses of vitamin A, either 200,000 international units in kids or 100,000 international units in infants. In a Cochrane review of vitamin A administration to children, investigators analyzed randomized clinical trials where children were given vitamin A or placebo in addition to the standard of care for management of measles. The authors found that there's no statistically significant changes in overall mortality with vitamin A administration when analyzed collectively, though the relative risk reduction of mortality was reduced about 30%. However, children under the age of two had a relative risk reduction in overall mortality of 72%, and a relative risk reduction of 67% of pneumonia-specific mortality, which, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the leading causes of death associated with measles. In a recent study out of Italy involving 108 children, investigators found no significant differences in fever duration, length of hospitalization, complications, or antimicrobial need. While controversy still exists, it is recommended by the WHO, as well as the CDC, to administer high-dose vitamin A in patients with severe measles. So as mentioned, dosing is 200,000 international units per day for children greater than 12 months, 100,000 international units per day for infants 6 to 11 months, 
and 50,000 units per day for infants less than six months. And each of these patients get two doses, so two days worth. If patients have a severe deficiency of vitamin A, which can manifest as xerophthalmia, keratitis, keratoconjunctivitis, corneal ulceration, or spots, which are weird elevated ridges on the whites of the eyes that result from dry conjunctiva, they should get a third vitamin A dose anywhere from four to six weeks later. Rhabdovirin is another potential therapy that can be incorporated in the treatment of measles, though its use is generally restricted to certain cases, and it is not FDA approved for the treatment of measles. In vitro, the measles virus has demonstrated susceptibility to ribavirin. Clinical evidence is severely lacking. In a single study out of India, pediatric patients were randomized to standard care with or without ribavirin. Fever and associated symptoms, such as the previously mentioned three C's and rash, were shorter in duration in the ribavirin group compared to the control group. Additionally, the ribavirin treatment group had no reported complications and an overall decreased duration of hospitalization compared to those who were treated with standard care alone. Patients who may be considered for ribavirin therapy include those with measles-associated pneumonia who are less than 12 months of age or are greater than 12 months of age with measles-associated pneumonia and require ventilatory support. Additionally, patients who are immunocompromised may also be considered for ribavirin therapy. It is usually administered twice daily over a period of five to seven days, though the ideal duration is still unknown. Dosing is between 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day, and that can be divided twice daily. Again, limited clinical evidence really suggests initiating treatment within the first week of illness versus delaying initiation after the first week. And then finally, just to briefly touch on uh, SSPE, there have been some therapies that have been investigated on this, except the data are actually quite old. A single multi-center non-randomized study from 1982 suggests the use of venociplex therapy, which extended survival in SSPE patients demonstrating 78% survival at two years after diagnosis and 61% survival at eight years after diagnosis, compared to patients who didn't receive therapy at 38% survival at two years and 8% survival at eight years, respectively. Interferon alpha or beta have also been studied. A 2003 study out of Saudi Arabia suggested no differences between anosoplex alone versus anosoplex plus interferon alpha 2b in terms of morbidity or mortality. Only patient satisfaction was really reported. So what can you tell us about the measles vaccine? And I'm afraid to ask, but can you talk about the link between the measles vaccine and autism risk and the story with that? That's a loaded question. I'll start with the vaccine part because the second part is a soapbox issue for me, having practiced in pediatrics for as long as I have. So certainly there are strong feelings. So with the measles vaccine, it was originally released in 1963, as mentioned, it came in two forms. One was an inactive form of the virus, while the other was a live attenuated vaccine identified as the Edmonston B vaccine. The inactivated vaccine was removed from the market in 1967 due to decreased immunogenicity, which we already touched on in discussing atypical measles. In 1975, the Edmonston B vaccine was removed due to an increased incidence of fever and rash. But before then, the short strain was offered or manufactured in 1965. That also subsequently was removed from the market as we progressed in our knowledge and response with the vaccine. So finally, the Edmonston Enders measles vaccine was released in 1968 and then was combined with the mumps and rubella vaccines to form the now known MMR vaccine. In 2005, varicella was also added to MMR, forming the MMRV or ProQuad vaccine. Both the MMR and MMRV vaccines contain live attenuated viruses. The MMR vaccine is indicated in all patients aged 12 months and older with a few exceptions, while the MMRV vaccine is indicated in children aged 12 months to 12 years. 
Both vaccines are recommended as a two-dose series, with the first dose administered at that 12 to 15-month period and the second dose administered at that four to six years of age. Though the second dose can be given four weeks for MMR or three months if it's MMRV later if needed. One thing to note is the MMRV vaccine has about double the risk of febrile seizures with first dose administration in pediatric patients aged 12 to 47 months compared to the separate MMR and varicella vaccine administration. So two shots instead of one, in this case, is actually better. Really, discussion needs to occur with the family before administering MMRV in children who are under that four years of age population to avoid this risk. Interestingly, this isn't seen with the second dose of MMRV or at 48 months or later, and really either vaccine can be administered at that time frame. Generally, it's preferred that the MMRV is administered at that four to six year age range because it's just a single shot instead of two. Both vaccines are contraindicated in pregnancy, severely immunocompromised patients, such as those on immunosuppressive medications, if they have HIV or are undergoing chemotherapy. Patients who have an active illness and are moderately to severely febrile, which is defined as a temperature greater than 38.5 degrees Celsius, active untreated tuberculosis, or are hypersensitive to any of the vaccine components are also contraindicated. Patients who have received an extended course of steroids should delay vaccination by at least two weeks. MMR and MMRV vaccines should be withheld indefinitely if a patient is receiving chemotherapy or has an immune-altering condition that would be contraindicated with live vaccines. Discussions should be had between both patient, family, and providers to evaluate patient-specific factors and evaluate risks versus benefits to vaccine administration. So now on to the elephant in the room. So a bit of a backstory, and you may be familiar with this, but I'm definitely familiar with this and very upset about it. In 1998, The Lancet published a case series that described 12 children with chronic enterocolitis and behavioral symptom development after administration of the MMR vaccine in eight of 12 patients, with nine of those patients getting diagnosed with autism. At the time, it was massive because it really suggested a link between autism and vaccines, and this has not been something that had been previously discussed. But there were ultimately multiple flaws in both study design as well as author conclusions. In 2004, 10 of the 12 authors on the paper published a retraction of the interpretation of the original data, which was followed by discovered financial conflicts after investigation between the lead author and lawyers trying to link vaccines and autism. In other words, there was some shadiness going on behind the scenes that we weren't familiar with. The editors of The Lancet released a statement regarding this and stated that the authors were not guilty of ethical violations and scientific misconduct. Soon after the study was released back in 1998, these large-scale epidemiologic studies were conducted and ultimately refuted the findings of the small paper, and despite attempts to repeat the results, no one could ever do so. And that's one of the hallmarks of science, right? Good study methodology, you should generally be able to repeat results. That could never be done with this project. Literally millions of children have been studied and quite possibly the largest epidemiologic endeavor to definitively demonstrate that there is no causative link between the MMR vaccine or really any vaccine in autism. And finally, in 2010, 12 years after this paper was originally published, it was completely retracted and the authors were found guilty of ethical violations and scientific misrepresentation. The authors had not received ethical clearance for invasive investigations. They had lied about their sampling being consecutive because it was not, it was actually selective. They picked and choose their data and they ultimately modified their data to support their investigation. As I said, there have been dozens of studies that have been published refuting the original fraudulent study. 
These include a meta-analysis involving 1.25 million children published in 2014 in the journal Vaccine by Taylor and colleagues, an epidemiologic study involving 650,000 Danish children born after 1998 by Havid Nal, and a 2002 study from the New England Journal of Medicine involving 440,000 Danish children born between the years 1991 to 1998, published by Madsen and colleagues, just to name a few. However, despite overwhelming evidence contradicting the myth of vaccines causing autism, it continues to persist with significant consequences, including vaccine hesitancy, belief in discreditable sources and conspiracy theories, increased access to unfiltered and unverified information through social media and the internet, and questionable media ethics and reporting. Fear and misunderstanding, along with vaccine hesitancy, has led to an uptick in vaccine-preventable diseases like measles, but also influenza, COVID, and more due to either delays in vaccination or failure to adequately vaccinate. The 2018 study evaluated 3,700 children with autism and almost 600,000 children without autism found that children with autism and their siblings were more likely to not receive the four to six year vaccine compared to children who didn't have autism. And as mentioned, that's part of your live vaccine MMR period that we aim. The ultimate consequence and really sad reality is that unvaccinated children and adults have experienced preventable morbidity and mortality due to immoral, unethical behavior and actions by a few scientists that went viral. Wow, that's a lot of data. It's very unfortunate one falsified paper has led to so much harm. How can we offset the misinformation with our patients? Great question. Ultimately, it really comes down to earning and developing trust with patients and the community at large, as well as a lot of communication. There are several actions we as practitioners can take to combat misinformation, and it will take a lot of effort. One way to do so is through community engagement, connecting with community leaders who can share reputable information from credited sources. Having these leaders act as vaccine champions in the community who go out and talk with their constituents and share both valuable, validated, honest, open, peer-evaluated information can be immensely helpful. Identifying individual concerns with vaccines, such as fear, misunderstanding, misinformation, like reading stories on social media, and talking through each concern are also incredibly helpful. Although this individual approach will take the most time, it still remains to be the most effective at both informing and educating patients. Incorporating motivational interviewing can be a great general approach to the discussion and can help to identify what the patient values are and how that can be matched with their own principles in terms of administering vaccines. Combating misinformation in general is quite difficult and the most effective approaches are still being figured out. Vaccine mandates are sometimes effective, but those also come with the caveat that it can infringe upon personal autonomy. We've seen arguments to that effect with the COVID vaccine release and the mandate in some healthcare settings. Unfortunately, not everyone will be swayed from one end of the other, but it's possible at least to shift that dynamic to get more people to get protected with vaccinations. And hopefully this happens before something drastic occurs and someone is harmed. So going back to our patient, how did things turn out for him in the end? Well, as I mentioned, when we left off, he was admitted to the negative pressure room. The team did provide a primary diagnosis of measles. It is put on isolation protocol. The State Department of Health is notified. The appropriate labs, including the nasopharyngeal swab and immunoglobulins are ordered per instruction. It's learned during SK's admission that one of his cousins developed measles back in Cameroon a few days after they left. SK is then initiated on acetaminophen at 15 milligrams per kilogram per dose and ibuprofen 10 milligrams per kilogram per dose orally, and they're alternated every six hours as needed for pain. He has ordered vitamin A, 200,000 international units orally daily for two days, which he tolerates very well. 
He's continued on his home medications for sickle cell disease without issue. As his parents are not vaccinated either, they are recommended to receive intravenous Ig due to possible initial exposure more than a week ago to prevent or mitigate a measles infection, which after discussion, they agree to. The providers have several discussions with the family about measles and how it can be prevented with proper vaccinations. They address parental concerns, utilize motivational intervening techniques to discuss vaccine hesitation and cultural considerations associated with vaccines, and affirm everyone's interest to be as healthy as possible. Prior to discharge, the family agrees to start the children on the vaccination catch-up schedule and will get their own vaccinations after eight months when it is appropriate to do so. That's all the time we have today. Thank you to Norm for a great topic and discussion. For our ASHP members, you can find additional resources and earn free continuing education for listening to this episode by visiting elearning.ashp.org podcast. Please note, continuing education credit expires two years after the date this episode is published. If you enjoy today's episode, be sure to subscribe to ASHP Official through your favorite podcast provider, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.